So yeah, I'm the Spanish uh, journalist who have been here for nine years, and uh, we're talking today about the, this little oasis of hope in the middle of conflict zones and war. And uh, to explain you how hard is my job is to explain to Spanish people and South American people what the region is. I give you an example. When I say I live in Beirut, they're all, oh, my God, you have like suicide terrorists in every corner. I'm like, yeah, I'm in Jamaica. <laughs> and they don't get this. So if explaining Lebanon and Beirut is difficult, explaining Syria, Yemen, Egypt, or Iraq is even more difficult. So I'm someone that, when I go to cover, uh, normally I choose for two weeks, I always try to get a little bit of light into it. Uh, not only because, uh, because it's there, because uh, it shows the personality of each country, shows when you try to survive into the conflicts, when they make this little oasis of normality, because psychologically you need it. Uh, you, I mean, in Syria, for example, which is the country I cover the most, you have 23 million. There is half million of men doing a war, but there is 23 millions of civilians surviving it. So despite that they had a previous life before, now they try to find this, not to find, to create these small spaces to feel mentally sane. So I do this because I think it reflects, it, it reflects the deep personality of the countries. And also because I need it, I need to show that there is more than war in these places. And when you come back every night to the hotel or to the camp or wherever you're sleeping, you need also to breathe and have these five minutes of laughing or saying, okay, today was something nice. It was also something good out of it. There was human there. So I would like to share uh, with you today three little bites of hope of uh, my coverage, two of them in Syria and one in Yemen, and uh, to say that not everything is that bad. So from Syria, I choose uh, two stories. One of them uh, that I was really, really impressed and uh, touched me. It was, um, I was covering uh, the front line in Jubar. It was hard, come back to Damascus. And at night, they told me, you know what? There is this uh, new place called Al Mahzen where young people are making a party tonight. I'm like, yeah, let's go. So we went, it's in the old uh, Baptuma, the old neighborhood of Damascus. And uh, for those that you know, in Baptuma, you have all these small streets with small doors that you think they, they lead nowhere. And then suddenly there was like this tiny door that I open, and you find this magnificent house, like Ottoman-style house with a lot of rooms, with a lot of young people. I found the person who was in charge, and he told me, you know what? This is an abandoned house probably from a very rich lady who went to Paris when the war started with like 12 room, and it was like full of uh, debris, of like stones and things. So they say, okay, there's nobody here. Let's ask the government if we can uh, do an atelier for the young artists to, to do our work here. Of course, they send one letter, second letter, ten letter, government never reply. After a month, they say, you know what? We're going to start cleaning it. They start cleaning it. You know what? We're going to start painting it. You know what? We're going to start doing our activities. Suddenly they realized that uh, Mukhabarat, so secret police, and the army were so busy on the front lines that they were free to do what they wanted. <laughs> Nobody <laughs> was caring about them at this time. So they started the atelier and they started giving courses of sculpture, of painting, of dance, of everything. You even have tango and salsa dances over there. So for me, this tiny door that you open and I discover all these big oases and and you know, artists are fit because of emotions. And war brought them a lot of emotions. 
So it's true, it changed their uh, colors. It was not brightful colors, it was dark and red. It changed their style, it was like more dramatic. But it was such a passion and such a creativity over there. I mean, they were talking about Kafka. Kafka, come on, my article, I titled it Kafka in Damascus. So it was very interesting to, to see that young people were finding this freedom that they didn't have before and this explosion of, of art among it. Later also, like for the second bite of hope. So as a woman, I'm always very interested how women and young people cope with the war. How you go normality, because from Spain, we think that war is like 24 hours, cannons, clashes, ballots. No, there is life, people have to eat, otherwise the 23 million will be dead. And they have to move and they have to, to keep their mind somehow. So one of the things I covered through the six years of war, like almost seven now in Syria, was always to focus how was this affecting to women because this is the part, uh, war in the region that women they don't participate mainly. Well, except maybe for the Kurds, but there is not a big presence of women in the front line. So they are more like victims, if you want to call it. Uh, and then I realized little by little that in Syria is happening what happened in Europe in the Second World War. So in the Second World War, men were too occupied on the front line that women has to take into the economic infrastructures. Something that is happening in Syria, and I realized, wow, in the administrations now, they are mostly women. Say, hmm. In the dukans, where the small shops that they use all over Syria, you start seeing women servings. And then you realize, okay, out of the 320,000 uh, dead, 200,000 are men. Out of the 80,000 youth who are fleeing away from the military service, mandatory one, they are men. So now women, a lot of widows and a lot of women are left alone in front of all these business and all these responsibilities. And uh, the first woman who made me think about it, it was Um Ali. Um Ali was from the periphery of Halep. She has four children and a husband. And the husband didn't want to leave from there. He was afraid. And she was the one, it was a veiled woman who barely left her neighborhood. I mean, used to make the groceries to the shop, come back and cook for their kids. And they were peasants. But she was so afraid for the life of the kids that she said, Khalas, I'm, I'm going. I'm going with all the flood of refugees to Europe and this will be better, my kids will be alive. So I decided to follow her from the border from Syria, uh, crossing to Tripoli, going into a boat, from the boat to, uh, to Mersini, south of Turkey from the south of Turkey to Izmir, and then we stayed three days negotiating with the traffickers. So during the trip, what I realized, it was this woman who at night, when she was talking to me, she was afraid and saying, okay, I don't know if I'm leading my kids to the death because they're gonna draw on the sea, or I'm giving them a better life. And she was very insecure, but during the day, she was this strong woman uh, who never deal with men before, her husband was doing it. And she started dealing with the traffickers and she was negotiating and saying no, $200 less. And she was going to the hotels and saying no, and going to the buses and really she was doing excellent. I mean, she did a record when she arrived to Lesbos to uh, Germany, I think she took like one day, it was like, I don't know how she did it. But for this to say that this woman who was like really in her house and never had this chance to be dealing with the outside world, this trip that we always say the Mediterranean is not a physical trip. Yeah, they risk their life, but for her it was a mental transformation. She really got empowered because of all these responsibilities she got. And this you can see it also in Syria, in the big cities like Damascus, Aleppo, most of women in the administration, most of the persons in the administration now are women, even at university. So young uh, girls, 20 years old, used to get married. 
Now there is no man to get married. What they do, they, they continue their studies. So now if you go to Damascus University, for example, or Aleppo, 75% are females of the students. So this is going to have an input in the, in the future. I don't want to say if it's positive or negative. What I know is like now women are more educated, more empowered, and they are developing roles they were not doing before. So these for the two uh, little bites of, uh, of hope uh, in Syria. We'll go to a different and uh, much more uh, darker country, which is Yemen, uh, because it has been under a very, very hard uh, embargo by sea, land, and, um, and air, and for media and for a lot of things. So I had the chance to cover uh, Yemen in 2015, in July 2015. And uh, it was a very hard experience, I think one of the worst, because it was like bombings constantly every half hour, and apparently uh, Saudis, they have uh, extra, extra amount of bombs uh, <laughs> to drop over the country. Uh, so I was in the north in Hajra, which is like five hours drive from Sana'a to the north. And uh, it was a very bad day. Uh, a plane bomb uh, cat's uh, market, which the cat is this leaf that uh, Yemenis, they like to chew all day long. They cannot survive without it. And uh, it was 67 persons dead. So they were all mostly in pieces. It was, it was really hard to cover that day. So I went to the hospital in Haja, and uh, I went to the morgue. They showed me the morgue. Turn out they didn't have enough uh, fridges to put the bodies, so they bought um, ice cream fridges. And they started putting the bodies inside. And then after I cover all the story, make all the interviews, I come back through a different uh, corridor, and then I start feeling smell, like very strong smell, like of uh, rotten, uh, but this smell of human being dead, which never leaves your nose. And then I realized three bodies, black bodies, over a table, and I asked the doctors, like, what are these three bodies doing here? Like, eh, Somalis. And I say, eh, Somalis, but I mean, if you have frigiders, you can put their bodies also in. And they were like, no, we're waiting someone to come to identify. Of course, Somalis, they are immigrant workers who left their country, who are at war already to go to another country at war because they think it's a better future. So I felt very saddened that these people who left their country were rotten in a corridor and they didn't have even the, the luxury to be in an ice cream fridge there. When I was coming back to Sana, it was a very hard way because we were all under bombings. And uh, in this of the spot, I saw like a group of 50 people gathering in a, in a, in a, in a reef, in a downhill, I don't know how you call it, like a precipice, a cliff. So there were like 50 people there, like all uh, like, uh, Houthis and civilians and everyone there, I say to the driver, please stop. I want to see what is going on. So down to the cliff, like 200 meters down, there was a body, also of a black person. And they were all wondering how we can get the body up. And it was like, really, 200, uh, like 50 people. After one hour, we were like almost 200 people. We are under the bombs. Uh, it's clearly not a national. And uh, they are gathering all the efforts to see how to get the body out. So I had a zoom and I started taking pictures. The sheikh of the village came in, started taking pictures and I see the body had the hands uh, cuff on the back. So I say, excuse me, sheikh, I think this is assassination because look at the pictures. So the guy was like, we want the pictures for the mahkameh, for the um, jury we're gonna do. 
I was like, really, I came here to take pictures, now I'm going to be a witness for a, <laughs> for a judgment for a guy killed in Sanaa, like in, in, in Yemen? The guy was like, yes, yes. I'm like, so really, you're going to make a judgment about this? Yeah, yeah, we're going to make an investigation, of course. Okay. They took the body up. Obviously, it was also Somali who was killed. Uh, we don't know why. I never, I never knew why, neither. You sent the picture, and that was it. But I was amazed that under the bombings, there was 200 men taking the robes, going down to make sure they get this body. So when he said that in this small oasis, you get the personality of how the country is, it's like Yemen was unruled at this moment. You have like President Saleh, President Hadi, one supported by uh, Houthis and uh, an army, the other supported by Saudi Arabia and the army. All this conflict that you think is chaos. And then you realize that because you are a tribal country, you have local sheikh who are really governing in this void and giving some justice to the people because it's in their culture. So for me, it was amazing that when I was, I was in Haja, these three bodies were left in a corridor, but 200 people were risking their life to be bombed because, as you know, when the planes come in, if they see a multitude, you are a target. And they were risking, and there were more people coming, and I was like, mm, not a good idea to stay here. But I was liking it so much and so curious, I said, okay, I'm, I'm going to see how, how this end up. It ended up taking the body and taking the witness of everything. My, uh, <laughs> my, <laughs> my pictures too, so to, to do a judgment the next day, and I say, okay, there is, a still, uh, there is a still this Yemeni spirit of we have a rule, and we want to know justice. So this to say um, that, yeah, war, uh, war is a shithole, but, uh, <laughs> but there is always people surviving, and uh, I always say that in war you see the worst and the best of the human being. But we do have to remember that the best of the human being is always present there, and that to survive mentally, you, you create a different normality and a different alternative, so you can keep on going on without becoming crazy. That's it. <laughs>